Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Steve Bannon is a disheveled presence and problematic personality in President Trump's West Wing. He's constantly rumored to be about to lose his job. But Josh Green, author of Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the White House, argues Bannon isn't going anywhere. Bannon is the authentic connection to and representative of Trump's base politics. You can hear the rest of Green's insights right now. Josh Green, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's great to be with you. Okay. You got to help me understand Steve Bannon and his influence on, on, on President Trump. And there's this great line from Roger Stone in your book about how you know their connection is real. Roger Stone uh, said it was, quote, because Steve is a slob and Trump hates slobs. How did that man gain such an important foothold with Trump? Well, you know, the answer, and this is this is kind of the narrative structure of the book, is that they met each other in 2010, and they were brought together by a guy named David Bossy, who's a very well-known uh, Republican operative, kind of specializes in anti-Clinton stuff. And Trump had met Bossy at some kind of charity deal. They'd been introduced by Steve Wynn. And nobody really knew it at the time, but Trump was getting serious about running for president. And so he asked Bossy to come up to Trump Tower and to tutor him periodically on what he needed to know. And one day, Bossy, who was friends with Bannon, brings Steve Bannon along. And Bannon, uh, if you haven't met him, is this kind of uh, wildly charismatic guy with with manic energy who uh, has been a Goldman Sachs, you know, Wall Street investment banker and a deal maker, and he's been out in Hollywood, and he just clicked with Trump in a way that um, outsiders don't usually. If you look at who Trump surrounds himself, they tend to be these uh, you know, bootlicking lackey types. Oh, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, you know. And Bannon, as is, is, is an advisor at the time, told me was the only alpha male in Trump's universe. And so they clicked. And Bannon had his own very distinct brand of, of uh, you know, nationalist, populist, anti-immigrant politics that he was uh, pushing through Breitbart News at the time. And so as he began to tutor Trump, he just started printing out and giving him Breitbart articles and kind of helping shape Trump's politics into what we saw uh, when Trump came down the escalator in Trump Tower and announced his candidacy. You know, um, like Steve Bannon looks like a disheveled, bloated Robert Redford. It, it, Very good. <laughs> I mean, if Robert Redford weren't so old, he would play Steve Bannon in the movie. And when you know things about Trump, where he aesthetics mean everything yes, to him, Appearance, yes, yes. appearances mean everything to him, and Steve Bannon is the antithesis of that. Yeah. Is it because Steve Bannon is just this person who... I'm just going to throw decorum out the window. His attitude is basically f*** it. Steve, so Bannon, you know, all his life was wearing uniforms. He was in the Navy and, you know, all these things. And when he got rich, he, he, he literally just said f*** it. I mean, his, his, his wardrobe, it's bizarre. You know, he used to wear nothing but cargo shorts and flip-flops. And then he would wear like three or four shirts on top of each other, which is 
You know, bizarre. But yeah, bizarre. So I actually one of the fun things about the book was all I, I tried to kind of come up with all these descriptives for his appalling <laughs> sartorial sense. I don't fall staff and flip flops, and I say he looks like he sleeps on a park bench, and I say you know looks like a bloated alcoholic. And but 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 I think uh, to get back to the Roger Stone quote that it's it it is a a sign of the authentic connection between Trump and Bannon and a sign of Trump's appreciation for Bannon's political skill that he allows like a, a, a big flea-bitten, <laughs> you know, moth-eaten, couch-looking guy like Steve Bannon to be in his inner orbit because nobody else dresses that way. Right. But the thing that they, that they do have in common is they're both wealthy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. is that the thing that overrode all of that in Trump's mind, the wealth, totally. but also he appreciated Bannon's mind? Yeah, totally. And I, I was talking, I interviewed uh, Corey Lindowski's first campaign manager for the book, who's there very early on when, even though Bannon wasn't a formal part of the campaign, he was still calling Trump all the time and essentially playing the same role he plays now, just unofficially. And, uh, you know, I was asking Corey to explain what the connection is. And he goes, well, you know, Trump is just very impressed that you know Steve has made millions of dollars like that matters it's a, it's it's a it's a measure of stature in Trump's eyes that that elevates Bannon above you know, a mere political consultant who's just like a workaday stiff well what's interesting is if you don't have a if you don't have a lot of money or haven't made a lot of money you better look great yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. if you don't look great but you've made a lot of money or you have a lot of money you're you're Okay. Yeah. You're fine. And, you know, we should stipulate, because I remember I joked about this with Bannon about about a couple weeks after he took over the campaign. He did make some (laughs) sartorial (laughs) concessions when he joined Trump's campaign. One, he put a blazer over his, you know, piles of shirting. Uh, But number two, this this just cracked me up. He traded the cargo shorts for cargo pants. So I was at, like, the first debate, and Bannon comes walking along the rope line, and he's wearing just these, like, appalling G.I. Joe cargo pants with his, you know, blazer. <laughs> and I said, what, what, what? He's like, yeah, I had to wear pants, but I'm not I'm not going all the way to slacks. So. Wow. Um, we'll, we'll move off the, the fashion discussion for a moment and get to the substance here, and that is that Steve Bannon brought to Donald Trump a willing student his white nationalist beliefs. Willing student, I say, because as you point out in the book, Donald Trump was the guy who paid thousands of dollars to put ads in New York New York City newspapers mm-hmm. calling for the death penalty for the Central Park Five, who we all now know, thanks to DNA evidence, were completely innocent. Um, Donald Trump not being afraid to push racial buttons and to and to play racial politics, whether it was the Central Park Five or more, re- well, not more recently, but um, in 2011, 2012, with President Obama and the whole birther issue. And what's interesting about all of that, and I'm so glad you put this in the book, Donald Trump is a household name because of his show The Apprentice. Mm-hmm. Talk about why the audience of The Apprentice was so important and why that audience of The Apprentice makes candidate Trump and President Trump seem like a completely different person. This, this was the neatest discovery in my research, because even though this, this tends to, the, the book tends to get talked about as kind of a Bannon book, I mean, Devil's Bargain is supposed to be about the two of them and their relationship. And so one of the narrative threads and one of the biographical threads in the book is Trump. Where did he come from? How did he make his way into politics? And how did he wind up as 
uh, the guy that he is today, you know, the kind of foaming, raging, angry, anti-immigrant, anti-free trade guy, um, one of the important periods of his life was when he got The Apprentice television show. And what I was shocked to discover was that Trump, once that show came out, actually had very broad appeal and became a darling of corporate America. So I worked for Business Week magazine, and so I'd always heard, I'd always been curious why these big corporations were so eager to advertise on The Apprentice. And I went and looked at the ratings and the demographic information. It turned out that Trump as Apprentice boss was even more popular with Hispanics and black people than he was with white people. And you know, I, I, I kind of couldn't wrap my head around that. Um, but this was back in the pre-birther period. And I began calling around to some of the big ad agencies. And I wound up talking to a woman named Monique Nelson, who is the CEO of a minority-focused advertising firm that had done ads on Apprentice for, for Home Depot, I think, for, for Toyota. And she said, you don't understand, Trump in the mid-2000s, this is the period we're talking about, was considered uh, wonderful for his portrayal of minorities on television because he presented them as uh, striving, ambitious entrepreneurs. They were co-equal with everybody else on the show. And this was at a time when the portrayal of minorities in primetime television, especially African-Americans, tended to be as gangsters or thugs or rappers or all the stereotypes. And people... People felt like they connected with Trump. They saw him as being, you know, a different big tent um, guy who had broad appeal, and that also made him a darling of corporate America, by the way, because not only could you advertise in The Apprentice and get 20 million viewers, but you would over-index with the minority viewers, which uh, you know certain advertisers are always eager to do. And so he, until he launched off on the birther jag it seemed to me, was actually positioned to be the kind of figure that most Republican leaders wanted atop their party, someone who had a broader appeal that could carry the Republican Party beyond its white, elderly, rural, working-class base and broaden its appeal to uh, young people, gays and lesbians, minorities, and all the demographic groups uh, that tend to vote Democrat. And he and to jump off that, he, it would seem, would have been the perfect candidate um, to solve all the problems outlined in the GOP autopsy that was done. Exactly. It would have been complete. And here's the thing. It would have been completely on brand for Trump to do that, too. I mean, A, he had no connection to the, uh, you know, tired, old, backward looking GOP. He had his own brand that was strong and popular and entrepreneurial and pro-business and big tent. I mean, Republicans have been struggling for 20, 30 years, ever since Prop 187 in California, to find a way to appeal to minority voters. And they failed uh, again and again and again and again. And Donald Trump in 2010, it seemed to me, was actually perfectly poised to be that candidate and carry him forward. Instead, he torched the support and chose uh, a very different path. And let's just point out also, not only what did he have The Apprentice, he was so popular with African-Americans, he was in rap songs. He, he is a lyric in rap songs. I got to tell you, I was so, so the day this book launched, I was on CBS Morning News and I was in the green room. The guy coming after me was Russell Simmons. And we mm-hmm. sit down and we're talking. He looks at the cover of the book and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I used to know Trump really well. We used to hang out. We talk all the time. Um, but after the birth of thing, I went on CNN and criticized him for it, and he called me and complained, and we'd never spoken again since. But it just goes to show you that the, the circles Trump 
traveled in and it's it, it's so it's so odd I mean, he's such an opportunist you know there there are people in politics who are just honest to god racist white nationalist you know clan hood wearing whatever uh trump is not that kind of guy i mean he 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 opportunistically will you know circulate among any kind of uh, you know, racial demographic group if he thinks it helps his brand. And so he, you know, in the, in the what, the 90s, the 2000s, yeah, he, he, he was a big deal in that world and loved it because what does he worship most? Celebrity. Right, right. He, he worships celebrity, but he also, wor- he loves adulation. Yeah. The fact yeah. that people like him, hey, you like me? Great. Um, but then June, tw- June 16th, 2015, sort of a great metaphor. He descends the escalator and brings down with him American political discourse. And in his announcement for president, he says, Mexicans, they're not sending their good people. They're sending, they're bringing crime. They're bringing drugs. They're rapists. And some, I guess, are good people. And from that moment on, it has, he has just gone downhill. And there's a moment in the book where um, um, I didn't write down this attribution, but I'm almost certain it's it's from Bannon, where he said Bannon says to him, "Darkness is good. Don't let up." Yeah. Talk about the philosophy behind that and how that impacted Trump. There, there's two points about Bannon here that are critical to understand. Number one, he really believes this anti-immigrant stuff. It is one of, if not his primary motivating concern, and that's true of a lot of guys in the White House, Stephen Miller, people like that. But uh, but number two, the role Bannon really played for Trump, even before he joined the campaign, was as the guy who came in and told him to be more extreme, to go further, to never apologize, which is what Trump wants to hear. So Bannon, when he was talking about, you know, darkness is good and don't apologize, was actually the guy who, behind the scenes, after the furor that arose uh, for the rapist drug dealer comments, uh, counseled Trump said instead of you know apologizing or you know revising and extending your remarks the way a normal politician would, Bannon helped organize the trip that that Trump took the next month down to Laredo, Texas, to the border, literally so that Trump could say the same thing to Mexico's face as Bannon put it. So not only is he not going to apologize, but he's going to go even further. He's going to be even more extreme. He's going to double down. And he is going to embrace this this darkness. He's going to continue to stoke and exacerbate voters' anxieties about race, about culture, uh, about economics. And that really wound up being the key, I think, to how Trump won both the Republican nomination and the presidency. At no point did candidate Trump or does President Trump worry about the racist baggage that he has overturned, unearthed, y- you know what I'm getting mm-hmm. at. I mean, to, to me, as an African-American, what he, what he and they, meaning President Trump and Steve Bannon, have done to American politics, to the Republican Party, is just, it's appalling and galling to our politics. And when we look at a president of the United States, we look to that person to be a reflection of our better selves. Mm-hmm. And all we've gotten back since that day he announced is a really ugly image that actually allowed him to win. Yeah. It's, it's I, again, I go back with Trump 
to the this idea of racial opportunism. And to me, and this is one of the stories I tell in the book, is one of the things I wanted to know that had never been satisfactorily answered for me was at what point did Trump, in his own mind, move from entertainer to politician? And the pivot there, the hinge moment, is when he goes off on this birther attack against Obama. And oddly enough, uh, that was not a Bannon thing. I mean, Bannon has always said the birther stuff is nonsense. I believe Obama was born here. That was, in talking to Roger Stone and some other longtime Trump advisors, that was an effort to humiliate and dominate President Obama in the expectation that Trump was going to run against him in 2012. In 12. He didn't. He didn't. But he was a, he was very serious about doing it, wanted to do it even before uh, Mitt Romney had lost. And if there's one thing you know about Trump, it's we now know his political style, right? You don't just criticize your opponent's you know, tax policies or whatever, you try and destroy them and go after them in the worst way possible. So you've got low energy Jeb and Lion Ted and Crooked Hillary. His way of going after Obama, which we didn't recognize at the time but do now, was to try and slander him in the worst possible way that in would just be— In personal terms. In personal terms, personal racial terms that would be utterly humiliating— and would be difficult for Obama to fight back against. And, you know, eventually Obama did have to really or choose to release his long-form birth certificate. But in the course of doing this, if you looked at polls of Republican voters, Trump essentially persuaded them that the birther nonsense was true or persuaded, you know, a large majority of them. So I don't think he had any hesitation at all about poisoning political discourse in order to advance his own Uh, political fortunes. And I think that that is an approach that he has carried all the way through till today. You know, there's something in in here, um, because you talk about how Bannon met Andrew Breitbart and how the two of them learned from each other, particularly Bannon learned from him. And I had to underline this among many things in the book, because it was so illuminating. And um, you wrote, and yet Breitbart himself was immune to shame, or at least to being shamed, and had no compunction about launching vicious personal attacks. And again, this is about Breitbart, but the same can be said about President Trump, about exactly what you were just about talking Bannon. about. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I think you know, on some level what these guys are doing, and I would include Andrew Breitbart and Steve Bannon and a lot of the folks at Breitbart News, I don't know about Trump, is they're fighting a culture war. And what they object to is the idea that, you know, straight white people of European ancestry, uh, you know, aren't allowed to have what they would consider the same privileges that ethnic and minority groups have. You know, you, you can have pride in your black heritage, but, you know, if we try and raise a Confederate flag, then we're racist. And no, we, we reject yes. no, we reject that framework. And therefore, not only are we going to do it, but we're going to shove your face in it and do it in the most you know offensive and extreme and hyperbolic way possible in order to make our point. That was, I think, part of the key to Andrew Breitbart's appeal is a kind of conservative media provocateur. He, he would just sort of burst through all the, the strictures. That's something Bannon deeply admired about him because Breitbart was very good at seizing control of the media narrative. I mean, the best example, of course, is the Anthony Weiner mm-hmm. genital tw- tweeting misfortune. <laughs> right. The misfortune. That, that, that we touch on in the book. Um, uh, you know, where he, like, seizes the guy's press conference and all of a sudden every cable network, you know, is taking this 
this press conference live where Breitbart essentially like steals Wiener's press conference. And, you know, Bannon loves that kind of stuff. And the lesson it taught him was, you know, go further, always be more extreme. Don't ever be bound by the you know, liberal, secular, mainstream media um, idea of what is and is not acceptable because it's all designed to, you know, limit your freedom and political power. Right. Don't don't be uh, bound by convention. Yeah. And, and, and I think Trump gets that not on an intellectual level, but just on a kind of a gut level that if I just become this political Godzilla and smash on all the norms and decency, not only am I not going to pay a price for it, but it's actually going to benefit me because it's going to draw in people who so hate Washington and so hate the establishment that they'll see that I am different than any other politician. And, and, and I think that was a huge factor in Trump's ability to win. People did see that, and he really was different than any other politician. Yeah, and you know, you said that you could do this and not pay a price for it. And you make a point in here, which is a very good point, that when Trump was going on his birther jag, that no one in the Republican Party stepped forward to say that's wrong. That's unacceptable. You shouldn't do that. You're a jerk for doing that. He's the president of the United States, full stop. Instead, what Trump took from that was there's no consequence at all for anything that I say. And not only is there no consequence, but I'd forgotten this until I went back to do the research for the book. Do you know that in 2011, as he was doing this Bertha thing, he was leading the Republican presidential polls back then? Yeah. So not only were there no consequences, Trump saw that this was his path to winning. He was connecting with conservative grassroots voters by offering up the most vile slander you possibly could, uh, you know, to the first African-American president of the United States. And grassroots conservatives were, were responding favorably to that. You know, I, I wrote a piece um, back then um, saying that, you know, he got out of the race as his poll numbers were falling. Uh, this is pre-2012 election when he was leading in all the polls, but it hadn't decided quite. He decided to leave the race, not to jump into the race. And um, I got one of those missives from Mr. Trump where my piece was printed out Actually. and <laughs> scrawled at the top. Right? Actually, I was ahead in the polls when I got out of the race. Best wishes, Donald Trump. Later on, I got another, after he uh, was running for president, another um, malevolent missive where <laughs> um, I called him a racist for what he was doing. And he wrote back, <laughs> again, printed out, scrawled at the top, Jonathan, you are the racist. Get rid of your hate, in quotation marks. Um, best wishes, Donald Trump. Best wishes. <laughs> best wishes. So let's fast wow. forward, because now we have gone through the campaign in your book. The book starts by talking about election night, which is some great, if you are a political junkie, you are going to love the, the inside details of what was happening inside Trump Tower that night when the entire nation, including Trump's campaign, thought he was going to lose. And then how that all changed and how Bannon always thought, he's going to win. I know he's going to win. Two things. One, why was Bannon so certain that they were going to win when all of the polls showed Hillary Clinton had it locked up? Uh, well, number one, I would say that Trump's own internal modeling, and, and despite the kind of 
you know, derp that characterized most of the Trump campaign. <laughs> they actually did have a, a very sophisticated polling and modeling setup. It was housed in this building down in San Antonio, Texas, of all places. But they had modeling that suggested to them that they had a much better chance of winning than anybody understood because they thought that a whiter, more rural audience was going to turn out than any mainstream pollster believed. So number one, it didn't look quite as bad on the inside of the campaign as it did on the outside of the campaign. But number two, I don't know if Bannon actually believed that they were going to win, but Bannon is a guy who goes into the, you know, I've known him for a long time, he goes into these manic phases where it's almost, I don't want to say bipolar, but but he becomes so whipped up in his own cause that I think he can no longer recognize objective reality from what he wants to happen. So with Bannon, it was almost a religious conviction, the idea that Trump is going to win. There's a path. He's got to do this. He's just got to, you know, keep saying what I'm saying. And and I think the only time that Bannon's faith ever wavered, and I I described the scene at about 5 p.m. inside Trump Tower with the brain trust is all shoved into this dirty little room they called the crack den, which was on the fifth floor <laughs> of Trump Tower. They're all shoved into the exit polls come out, and they showed Hillary uh, either winning or tied in every swing state. That was the only moment I think that Bannon had doubts about whether Trump could pull it off. But then, you know, an hour or two later, results start coming in, and it's clear that Clinton is not winning, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in most of these swing states, and she didn't. And the and the second thing that comes out of all uh, out of all of this is there were no speeches prepared, not an acceptance speech, not a yeah. concession speech, yeah. because Trump was um, superstitious, didn't want to take anything for granted, and didn't want to do anything until the AP called the race, or at least called Pennsylvania. Yeah, right. And this is this part in the book. I, I thought was very curious, given where we are now. You know, Trump made clear that he wanted a speech that would bring the country together. That's the probably the first and last time <laughs> yes, it that he even let such words come out of his mouth. And just in full disclosure, when I because I went to bed early and woke up like gobsmacked like everybody else and saw later his acceptance or his victory speech and believed not a word that was coming out of his mouth. I appreciated the effort. And now here and now here we are. How did we get from wanting a speech that would bring the country together to the point where he's tweeting that transgender troops shouldn't be in the military, that white people have such hard problems getting into college that we need to reinvestigate affirmative action, that we're going to limit legal immigration. And I could just go on and on and on down the list. How did we get from November 2016 to where we are right now? Well, I think I think at the moment we're talking on election night, Trump, as you said, is very superstitious. One of one of the interesting things I discovered in the reporting was that, um, you know, not only did he not have speeches, but Bannon hadn't even broached the subject with him because he knew that Trump would get stressed and that he's, he doesn't he doesn't like to have this stuff planned out ahead of time. Uh, and I think Bannon told me after the election that he actually believed that if Trump had lost that night, he wouldn't have even gone out on stage to concede. Uh, but in the event, it's clear he's going to win. So they go up in the elevator to Trump's penthouse and just sit down at the kitchen table and hash out this speech. I think... The feeling then was, oh, 
what do we do? What do we do? We just won a presidential election. You know, we have to govern now. And I think habitually the first thing you do is try and bring the country together. So they rough out a few lines about how, uh, you know, they want to unify the country. But what we know about Trump is that he doesn't really want to reach out and make concessions in order to attract people. What he wants is for everybody to just come to him. So I think Trump, even today, is fine with unifying the country so long as the country unifies around the specific and off-putting policies (laughs) that he himself has, has, has stood for. The white nationalist policies that he is that he is espousing. I'll say it. Let's talk present day. You know Bannon. You know Bannon well. This West Wing is, I don't even know what popular show to describe it to. I've never watched Game of Thrones, so I can't use any kind of analogy with any kind of authority or credibility. That would apply. But I've said to people, you know, West Wings always have backstabbing among the, the senior people. But this West Wing, they're stabbing you in the back, in the front, <laughs> in the face, and everyone is attacking everyone, leaking against everyone. Sean Spicer, White House press secretary, resign. Anthony Scaramucci, do we even talk about him because he wasn't even there long enough? Yeah. <laughs> Ten days. The two people who were seen as folks who like, need to go, Reince Priebus, now former chief of staff, but also Steve Bannon is someone that folks, certain folks in the West Wing really want him gone. And yet we've seen stories over the last six months that he's up, he's down, he's, got, he's out, he's in, he's, he's been sidelined, and yet he is still there. And to my mind, all of these things about transgender troops and um, the affirmative action stuff out of the Justice Department and the insanity of that Stephen Miller press, <laughs> him well, in the, the briefing room of immigration – Plus, the resumption of the rallies that the president is doing, to me, that's all Bannon. Bannon Bannon is part of the firmament. He's not going anywhere. I think, yeah, I think think he has—I mean, this is hopefully what the the book illuminates, that there is an authentic connection there between Trump and Bannon, and that is the reason why— Trump continues to listen to him, continues to espouse these policies, and why, despite the bloodbath in the West Wing, Bannon is still a survivor. I just I I think that he he understands, and Trump understands this too, that Bannon is the authentic connection to and representative of Trump's base politics. And the one thing Trump fears most in the world is losing that connection and losing that support to his base, to his voters, and therefore I don't think he's going to push Bannon out. And lose lose support of his base, which is a small subsection of the entire American electorate. We're used to having presidents who campaign rough. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're not babes in the woods here. We, we've seen campaigns. We know candidates say all sorts of stuff. But once they win the office, particularly the presidency— you say, okay, I've got my base, but I've got to reach out to the rest of the country. Otherwise, I can't govern. And Trump has gone, I guess, is continuing what he did on the campaign trail, which is to smash all over a uh, convention and say, so, you know, I don't need the rest of the country. I'm going to just stick with this, what is it down now, <laughs> to like 33% yeah, yeah. of the American people who think I'm doing a great job. 
Is that even let's move back from Trump and just mm. as a veteran political correspondent, observer of the White House, is it possible for a president to effectively govern in that way? You know, it would if he were slightly more competent because Republicans control the House and the Senate. And so at least on paper, Democrats can't really stop them. They just need to get their own affairs in order, uh, decide what they're going to do and and get it through Congress. Of course, they've been entirely unable to do that. But uh, what I don't understand and still don't understand talking to people in the West Wing is why he is continuing to pursue this uh, agenda that is so off-putting to everyone who isn't part of that 33% in his base. And the answer I get back is, well, look, you've got to lock down the base and then build outward from there, which sounds plausible, except for you look at, at, at the building outward and he's trying to ban transgender troops and he's trying to lower legal immigration and he's increasing deportations and, do, you know, and, and, and doing you know, 15 other things that are toxic to most independent voters or independent-leaning Democrats. And so I don't see how he is going to grow his support, uh, but for whatever reason, among you know, Trump and his senior staffers, to uh, reset and try and do something on the policy front rather than just the personnel front mm-hmm. to change the story and make him a little bit more appealing. Well, uh, or even appealing to fellow Republicans I mean, this is a guy who who he couldn't get the repeal of Obamacare and institute Trump care because he does things like get a bill passed. The House passes something. He has a big victory rally in the Rose Garden because they got like a first down. (laughs) I know football. Um, um, And then weeks later, he says, well, the House bill is mean. I want a nicer bill. The message that sends to Republicans who stuck their necks out to vote for this thing, knowing it was a crappy bill, must send a, a chill through those folks. Well, not not only I mean, yes, it does. Uh, but not only that, but you know, I've talked to some people, some some legislators who have gone to the White House and had these private dinners with Trump, and the subject of health care has come up. And what they've told me is that it's clear he doesn't have any idea what he's talking about. He knows nothing about the policy in his bill. He's incurious. Um, he can't possibly understand how to sell it because he doesn't know what it's supposed to do, and he doesn't know what 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 he and the Republicans are trying to do um, in repealing and replacing Obamacare. So they realize you know, not only is this guy driving blind, but he's someone who really only cares about himself and who isn't going to jump in to defend us, uh, and in fact will happily throw us over over overboard, you know. If he feels like it. And so that doesn't engender the kind of you know trust and support and loyalty that you need if you're a president trying to pass a landmark bill like right. health care. Yeah. I mean, presidents, we saw with President Obama, how many joint sessions of Congress speeches did he give and speeches around the country pushing hard just to get it over the finish line. Well, he even went to Republicans. You remember this? And had this, like, open televised debate over health care. Like, he went to Congress and sort of hashed out. So it was clear, A, you know, Obama knew it was in the bill. He could make a case for it. And, uh, you know, he was going to lead the charge in trying to sell this in a way that Trump uh, either can't or won't do with his health care bill. And so I don't think it's any coincidence that one passed and the other failed. Mm -hmm. Now, um, there's a new chief of staff. Retired General John Kelly, former uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, he's in there. 
supposed to impose some order, successfully got rid of Anthony Scaramucci. How is a chief of staff, Kelly, going to play with a senior advisor like Bannon? I, I think pretty well, oddly enough. They both have a military background. Bannon was in the Navy. Kelly was a Marine. Um, they are both, believe it or not, law and order guys. I mean, what Bannon argues, and you hear this from a lot of the immigration hawks in the White House, is, look, we don't need to pass new laws. We just need to enforce the laws on the books. So Bannon has been a big fan of Kelly from long before he was named chief of staff because Kelly, as DHS secretary, showed himself willing not only to increase arrests and deportation of undocumented immigrants, but to go before Congress and defend the president's policies. He says, yes, we are going to build a wall on the border with Mexico. Uh, I I believe Kelly argued that the travel ban was okay. Uh, because he thought that the Constitution gives the president the powers to do this sort of thing. So I think quite a few people in the White House were pleasantly surprised by Kelly's willingness to follow the letter of the law and carry out the president's policies, maybe not because of a deep personal fondness for Trump himself, but because Kelly uh, respects the office of the presidency and believes uh, that office imbues its its occupant uh, with certain fairly substantial powers to to carry out the policies that the president wants to carry out. And Kelly is willing to enable that. Josh Green, author of Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the White House. He's also senior national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. It was great to be with you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.